the University of California, Irvine, this is the UCI Podcast. I'm Brian Bell. Whether we acknowledge it or not, many of us try to live up to a set of myths about how we perform in our careers, how we take care of our families, and how we take care of ourselves. These myths and the technologies we use to attempt to make them a reality are the subject of a new book by Melissa Masmanian, an associate professor of informatics in UCI's Donald Bren School of Information and Computer Science, and Christine Beckman, a professor of public policy at the University of Southern California. Dreams of the Overworked, Living, Working, and Parenting in the Digital Age through Stanford University Press is on sale now. Our discussion with Professor Masmanian about this newly published book is up next. Professor Masmanian, thank you for joining the UCI podcast. I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Brian. Before we talk about your new book, um, could you please describe your main area of research at, at UCI? Of course. So I am a professor. I have a joint appointment in the Department of Informatics, which is a fascinating department. We think of ourselves as a very interdisciplinary group of people who look at the intersections of technology and humanity. So we have everything from software engineers who are building the tools to critical theorists who are looking at you know, broad impacts on society and human computer interaction, building tools and understanding how they're used in the world. And my little corner of that is I've always been someone who looks at technology in use in everyday life. And I was trained in a management department. So I oftentimes look at the intersection of work and work at home and how technology plays into that mix. So I have a joint appointment in the Department of Informatics and the business school where I teach things like organizational behavior. And uh, my research has really been in that domain of looking at these kind of everyday technologies, so smartphones, legal records, hospital management systems, and how they affect the everyday activities of people trying to get through their day, do their work, go home, etc. What inspired you to write this book? Well, so I came to UCI as a junior professor, and my dissertation my my research prior to my life here was on blackberries which were very new and exciting <laughs> back then and i had looked at blackberries with a lot of people in the workplace and they kept telling me if you really want to know how the blackberry affects my life you have to come home with me and so i had this in the back of my head when i started at uci and a few years into my time here i realized that i really did have the opportunity as a professor and in this exciting interdisciplinary space of informatics to actually take that question seriously and ask what would it be like to go home with people Um, and so a good friend of mine and colleague Christine Beckman who was then at Mirage and is now at USC we started this giant research project where we tried to figure out what would it look like practically and research-wise to do a more ethnographic look at people's everyday lives We were interested in looking at busy professionals because that was kind of where both had an affiliation with the business school and that was our background, but we're also both sociologists. And so we went into a workplace, which was our kind of comfort zone, and we stayed there about six months and we interviewed a bunch of people, we followed people around, we really learned the kind of culture and experience of work in this one company. 
And then we stepped back and asked people if we could go home with them. <laughs> and at that point, they knew us. We weren't strangers. And uh, a surprising number said yes. So we went home with nine different families, meaning that uh, between the two of us and a really excellent graduate student, Ellie Harmon, we each spent between 80 and 100 hours with nine different families. And in each family, one parent worked for that big company we were part of. So we really were able to look at the kind of questions of what work-life balance means outside of work. Uh, what is the company? It, uh, it's a hotel management company? Yes. So it's an interesting sector of society that I didn't know much about before this. Hospitality has become really important, as you know, in the last few months. And I can tell you what's happened to a lot of these people recently. But it is a hotel management firm, which means that they run hotels for outside owners. So if you own a hotel, you can ask this company to come in and manage your hotel for you. So technically, everybody works for the hotel management company, the ones we studied, all the managers in the hotels. We're talking catering managers, sales managers, events planners, et cetera, as well as all the hourly workers. And But the, the hotel, the management firm is doing this on behalf of owners who are just getting the dividends from the running of their hotel. And, and, it, and seemed, the, it seemed like a very high-pressure work environment reading the book. <laughs> well, you know, it was interesting because I think – uh, it was more high pressure than I expected, but that's because I didn't do anything about the industry. I mean, I think in our world, many, many jobs are high pressure. We've we've, we've taken on a assumption that, you know, 24-7 availability and constant connectivity is the norm. And so therefore, it almost doesn't matter what you're selling or what you're doing or what you're producing. When we take on those norms, that that's the pace that work should happen then all, um, you know, the vast majority of jobs become this high-pressure situation. And, and so you talk about the, the, the technology um, uh, connection to all of this. Can, can you tell us a little bit, a bit more about how you thought about technology while writing this book? Absolutely. You know, we came in thinking, how do these tools help people kind of get through the day? Um, how are they used in the course of trying to navigate the demands from work and the demands from home, et cetera? After observing and being with, I mean, really being part of these nine families' lives and then kind of stepping away and trying to think big picture about what did we see and what did we learn, um, the, the, the technology story got a lot more complicated in the sense that one of the things I've always been trained and have a very deep appreciation for is the idea that technology are just tools. Now, they're tools that have certain capacities, right? Like they allow us to do things differently. But how we as humanity, you know, how we as people, as users of those tools, actually take advantage of the capacities that the technology provides us, there's a lot of wiggle room there, right? So there's a lot of kind of we use the tools to, to do certain things and to promote certain ideals and to kind of to be the people we think we want to be. And to be specific, we use tools like our smartphones in service of trying to be our best sense of ourselves. And so what this book ended up helping us see was that there are these kind of dominant mythologies of how people should be in today's day and age. And then the technology was used, we use, We all do this, not just these families, we use the technology to be those people more in a more extreme way. And the myths that we talk about in the book 
are this desire to be an ideal worker, which really involves being on call, you know, being responsive, being someone who prioritizes work and really is able to, you know, to, to be that great colleague. Um, also to be this kind of perfect parent. So somebody who's able to provide enrichment activities and, you know, spend quality time with their kids and kind of make sure and monitor that they're getting their homework done and, you know, being this kind of really hands-on perfect parent, as well as being in this kind of ultimate body. So be able to stay fit and to eat right and to prioritize our health in certain ways. So we all feel these pressures. These pressures are very kind of impossible to achieve on their own no less all three of them these myths but we get these tools and technologies and we use them to be more of those people right so all of a sudden if if it to be a good colleague i'm someone who answers the phone when you call (laughs) now a good colleague answers your email when you send it and now if i have a smartphone a good colleague answers your email when you send it at 10 p.m or midnight right so so it's the same drive to be a good colleague and we're going to use the technology to kind of further or enact that goal but the technology actually changes what it means in practice kind of the actions that it takes to be that good colleague. And you can see that in parenting and in how we take care of our body as well. So we call that the spiral of expectations. So we're ratcheting up our expectations because the the combination of the technology plus the value makes it harder to be any one of these myths in practice. Was there anything that came as a big surprise to you uh, during this book writing project? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So a few things came as a surprise. I think the first one was a real genuine acceptance and understanding that these people who, from an outside perspective, meaning my perspective and my colleagues' perspective who were studying them, thought, my gosh, these lives are a little bit crazy, right? These people seem tired. They seem stressed out. They seem you know, never able to do it all, right? So never able to be the colleague or worker they want to be, never quite able to be the parent they want to be, never able to get to the gym. You know, it's it's just kind of, it felt like a very stressful existence, and it was. But the surprising part was when we talked to them and really stepped back and reflected, they don't, they didn't express a desire to back down. They just wanted to do it all better. Right, so that's where the promise of technology becomes so just so seductive, as it wasn't like people were saying, "I want to quit my job." One of the moms who decided to quit her job to be a stay-at-home mom because of family circumstance really struggled with that. She really missed her eleven-hour-a-day job. I mean, substantively, like a lot of her identity and pleasure was gotten from being really successful in the workplace, and it was a very hard transition. I think we, I expected more of a "this is too much." I want to back down and instead what we found was this is too much I want to do it better and that I think that was just a really fascinating perspective on kind of the joy and pain and struggle and stress and satisfaction people seem to get from these kind of very rich but also very rushed and kind of harried lives. You use a term in the book, um, scaffolding, to describe this sort of uh, support structure that uh, many of these or all of these families have at some degree or another. Um, Could you elaborate on that term, scaffolding, please? Absolutely. So 
scaffolding is not new. There's a you know there's a classic book of, called Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner, and it's the idea that Adam Smith, the famous economist, couldn't have been him without somebody making and it was his sister making his dinner. Um, I heard recently that Henry David Thoreau's mother used to bring him sandwiches <laughs> while he was writing. Right. <laughs> so this idea that individual so we have this dominant myth in the united states and, and western studies writ large about the kind of primacy of the individual the lone individual who through hard work and grit and determination makes it in this meritocratic society and i think that that myth has been challenged in all kinds of ways but fundamentally even those lone individuals had to, in order to dedicate the time to have the dedication and grit to do whatever it was that they were going to make their mark on the world had to have somebody else helping them so there is no way that you can feed yourself <laughs> no less have children no less care for those children no less be what we consider a good parent without help and this has always been the case of men in a male-dominated society where, where men are really the primary workers and women were expected to take care of the home front but as more and more women are going to work, and now we have, I think it's 60% of U.S. families that are double dual working parents, that doesn't mean that they don't have help. They just have to find that help elsewhere. So we see parents, meaning grandparents, neighbors, ext extended family members, and the labor of minority, black, brown, immigrant women usually being paid to do the jobs of scaffolding and that's a problem in of itself because these are not stable jobs and they do not have a social kind of network underneath them so incidentally we're not the first scholars to talk about the structure of the family and you know reveal that the cl classic idea of a nuclear family is also something that has never truly been the the norm of most american families so the idea that you have one parent at home and one parent at work 2.5 kids and you live in the suburbs just isn't the reality for most people so Dawn Dow, a black woman scholar, has talked for a long time about um, African American community mothering so the idea that because black women had to both work to support their families they were excluded from the dominant narratives of domesticity and what it was to be a mom and created alternative ones that really had to do with calling on a group. So mothering as a community effort. And actually, we think this is really important and something that we want to highlight as an alternative way of understanding what it could be to be an ideal parent. Patricia Hill Collins also has talked a lot about how the black communities have been excluded from these dominant ideas of what it means to be a good parent and create a different ones. There's been a lot, a long history of looking at how particularly white women have succeeded in the workplace by hiring out immigrant workers. And so Piret Hongadu Sotela has a fabulous book called Domestica, which is looking at how the kind of, we need the social structures of support for these jobs, for domestic workers to create a more stable society for all women. Um, and we really need governmental and policy solutions to be able to, to, to achieve that goal. But everybody needs help. And one of the things that we think was really an interesting insight of the book is that the structures of these help are not the same. So every family needs help, and that's what we call scaffolding. 
But what we try and do is unpack the different kinds of structures that we see, and we give them names. And so one structure is the idea that you have one parent working and one parent taking care of the home front. We call that single scaffolding because you've got a single person scaffolding the worker. Then you have double scaffolding, which means you've got two parents attempting to prioritize their work, and together they have to rely on each other really to find that external support. So whether that's paid help, whether that's neighbors, whether that's a combination of all those things. And they're really relying on each other to try and manage that scaffolding, um, which can be very tricky, by the way. And then you've got modular scaffolding, which is the sense that you have one person who the family has decided really is the primary job. They don't have to decide this explicitly, but the default is that that person is a primary worker. And then the other person is working, but maybe in a less intensive job. But either way, that person has taken the full burden of managing and and cultivating a structure of support. So that person is really the point person. So from the person who's the primary worker, they don't really see how their life is being taken care of because that burden is falling on the modular person or that kind of person in the middle. And then the last structure is needle scaffolding, which is the default of any single parent. And we do have two single parents in our study, one male and one female. And so that person by just, you know, they don't have a lot of choice, right? So they are fully in charge of managing the structure of support and they have no default help. Hmm. And so what we talk about is all of the kind of ways that this works for different families and the kind of benefits and challenges in terms of everything from how egalitarian the couple feels to whether or not this structure is particularly stable, what happens when something falls apart, and there are real benefits and challenges of each one. And we really try, I mean, not just try, I think we really do respect and value all the different structures. We just want to lay out kind of and make these choices a little bit more explicit for families so they see what they are doing and whether they can have the conversation of whether this is the right structure for our family. Did you find there was a difference in the way that the men used technology versus the way that women you studied used technology to uh, oh, manage their daily life? That's a good question. Yes, that's a great question. So the other thing we did, I'm going to answer your question, about to step back once to answer it. So the other thing we really try and outline in the book is all of the different kinds of work that have to go on behind the scenes for people to go kind of live their dreams of being the ideal worker and the perfect parent and so forth. And this invisible, we're not the first scholars to talk about invisible work, but what we do do is we really lay out a framework of all the different kinds of invisible work that we see that have to happen on the home front. And so there's the physical work of doing dishes and, you know, cleaning the house and kind of going shopping. Yes, you can see someone do that work, but it's still not really valued. Then there's the mental work of remembering, you know, who needs to go to the doctor this month, whose birthday party is coming up, you know, um, what to put on the grocery list before someone goes to the grocery store, etc. Those two have been talked about a bit. One thing that we kind of, we truly bring to the surface also is what we call coordinating work and emotional work. And the coordinating work in our perspective is that work of managing your health. And that makes it sound much more like a uh, employer-employee relationship. It could be just texting your parent or the grandparent saying, hey, can you pick so-and-so up after school? So, you know, you're you're doing this coordinating of all the various forms of support. The last form of work would be emotional work, which in our definition of that term means 
thanking those people, making sure that they want to support your family. And this can be for both paid and unpaid. So if you're paying a babysitter, it's still in your interest to get to know that person, to chat with them a little bit, maybe if they want to be chatted with or to make sure, you know, or to let them go quickly if they want. But like figure out who they are and how do you appreciate them so that they want to work for your family, whether or not it's paid or unpaid. Um, And there's a lot of emotional work that goes in to managing help. Um, I have a great story about that, but so the, the, the technology part comes into play with a lot of this coordinating and emotional work. And so whoever in the family is doing that work, which I will say is mostly women, though not entirely, men are perfectly able to do this work. We have one family that was a stay-at-home father and a full-time working mother, and he did all of it. I mean, she was very much a traditional. She came home from work and sat down to the dinner that he prepared, and she helped around the house and so forth, but he was really the one in control of all the mental and coordinating work. That was Corey? Corey, yes, that was Corey. Um, And Tim also is a single... I can start to use their names, right? So Tim also is a single dad, really had kind of recently learned um in the course of of us being there what it meant to do a lot of the coordinating work and emotional work because he was calling on his parents he was trying to find babysitters etc so the technology question comes into play in that a lot of that happens through texting through phone calls through little check-ins right so we tell this great story of lisa who's a really a modular parent so she really is taking the burden of organizing the lives of three very busy elementary school age children each one was in multiple activities and she had her mother to help she had brought in neighbors to help she had other mom friends to help now her husband actually helped quite a bit but she really coordinated the whole thing so even though he was there to help he was actually being deployed just like her mother and the neighbor and the other mom friends And she had this fascinating, like she would wake up each morning and do her little text. You know, she had a whole series of texts of who was go, who was taking who, where, at what time, who was getting food, dinner, at what time, where were we going to meet, you know, who was going to pick up this kid and take them there, et cetera. And so that's where I think the technology becomes this way of orchestrating these really complex lives. And you see that more for women, but not entirely. Very interesting. Well, the book was finished before this coronavirus pandemic situation yes. uh, came about. But uh, do you think there are some points in the book that are relevant to the way we're living our lives right now? Absolutely. I mean, so I would say, so there's a couple things I think. So this book, as you said, all of the research for this book and the writing of this book really happened before any of this. Um, but the themes of the book, I think, in some ways are even more relevant. And I think that, you know, we're at this real turning point in terms of what's going to happen next. And so it's a really interesting time to reevaluate what are our kind of goals and dreams. So the three pieces that I would say have become even more relevant or differently relevant are one is that, you know, just to be explicit that the myth of the ideal worker the myth of the perfect parent and the myth of the ultimate body are always unattainable and they were always unattainable, right? Mm -hmm. They were, each one is unattainable on its own to be truly the ideal worker, to be truly the perfect parent, no less trying to kind of navigate doing all three of them. And I think that the kind of pandemic and the current 
retrenching into people's home lives and stay-at-home orders, et cetera. It's really forcing a different conversation about what do we value because it's become very clear that people can't work and parent in the way they used to. Um, I think exercise is a slightly different question because people are using exercise really in interesting ways while staying at home. But you simply cannot work in an ideal way with your kids coming in and out of the room, you know, with them popping into Zoom calls. Recognize the, the incompatibility of these roles has become very clear. And what are we going to do about that, I think, is really, really important. Um, and I would say, as a caveat, I am very concerned about what I would call this kind of potentially lost generation of workers. So if there is anybody out there in who is lucky enough to keep a job, so let's just put that out there. If you are lucky enough to keep your job and you have children under the age of 12, I would say, maybe 10, I'm thinking of my, I have a five-year-old and a uh, recently 13-year-old, so I can say, I'm going to say 10, because <laughs> my 12-year-old's doing pretty good. But if you have a child under the age of 10, there is no way that you can work to the same degree that your colleague that either has older children or, or no children is working right now. Hmm. And we need to really understand that. And that's going to have long-term consequences in terms of promotion rates, potentially in terms of review cycles. So we can say in the short run, oh, be open-minded and recognize that people might have a lot on their plate and they might not get stuff done exactly that time. But three years from now, when we look back and say employee X has done all of this in the last, you know, three years and employee Y has not, is that going to really not affect their promotion rate? So I think we have potentially a lost generation of workers, basically anyone with young kids who's able to stay employed. Hmm. And I just think it's really going to be a problem going forward and not something we should ignore as, as organizations and as a society. It's, I'm, really, I'm really concerned about what's going to happen to those, to those employees. Well, it seems like a subject uh, for a, a new book. <laughs> Maybe so. That's a great. That's a great question. But so I think the pandemic has forced us to question a lot of these things, to surface a lot of these incompatible myths, and I think that in whole is probably a good thing. I also think it's a time to really interrupt the spiral of expectations, as we were talking about with the technology. You know, another way that technology has been used in the past is to kind of mask the incompatibility between these roles. So you could use your, you know, you could text your babysitter or your neighbor or your mother and say, hey, will you pick up the kids from school because I'm running late from work? And no one at work had to know, right? Like it was very done. You know, the, the beauty of these tools is that it's like, you know, silent text-based asynchronous communication um, in terms of texting and email. So we, people oftentimes use the tools to kind of maintain a, a barrier between what people saw about each other's kind of the juggle that they were each handling. And I think that that has dissipated a bit. So when you've got kids popping their head into zoom calls and that that's no longer something to be embarrassed about because it's so become so prevalent, that masking function of technology has actually been diminished. And I think therefore we can start to actually think about, you know, can we interrupt the spiral? about this assumption that because we have technologies, we should become all the more available and more responsive, and whether or not that's possible and compatible with our ideals of being good workers and good parents. 
So that's the second. And then the last thing I would say, um, which is, again, a third core theme of the book, is that, I mean, I don't know about you, but I know for my own personal life, and I know for some of the people that we've talked to recently, because we've revisited these families recently, is that people lost their scaffolding when the stay-at-home orders happen, right? So if you're having outside people come into your home to help, um, many, many families lost that. Now, we see new forms of scaffolding emerging as millennials are moving home with their parents. There's a recent news story about that. We see new forms of scaffolding emerging as neighbors are getting to know each other better and maybe creating these kind of small pods of social interaction and practical help. But the kind of value of scaffolding and the, the fact that we all need it, the fact that it actually takes work to cultivate it, to create it, um, and that we're pretty lost without it. I think all of that, those um, kind of realities have surfaced in the last few months and kind of what are we going to do with those insights going forward? So are we going to value scaffolding more? Are we going to create a social kind of insurance fund for care workers and domestic workers? Are we going to really start to value this work um, in a new way? I really hope that, that that could be a positive outcome of all of this. Well, I want to thank you very much for joining the UCI podcast today to talk about uh, work life and family life and uh, digital life. Oh, I'm happy to do so. It was really fun, and I appreciate the opportunity to chat about the book. You can read more about Professor Masmanian's work and find a link to purchase her new book at melissamasmanian.com. There's also information about her other areas of research for UCI at informatics.uci.edu. The UCI Podcast is a production of Strategic Communications and Public Affairs at the University of California, Irvine. I'm Brian Bell. Thank you for listening.